Chapter forty six of the Angel of the Revolution by George Griffith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter forty six Victory. It was a little after three o'clock in the afternoon when Natas, Tremaine, and Arnold ended their deliberations in the saloon of the Ethuriel. At the same hour, a council of war was being held by Generals Le Gallifet and Consens at the Crystal Palace Hotel, Sydenham where the two commanders had taken up their quarters. Since daybreak matters had assumed a very serious, if not desperate, aspect for the troops of the League to the south of London. Communication had entirely ceased with the Tsar since the night before, and this could only mean that His Majesty had lost the command of the air, through the destruction or disablement of his fleet of aerostats. News from the force which had descended upon London told only of a fearful expenditure of life that had not purchased the slightest advantage. The blockade had been broken on the east, and therefore all hope of reducing the city by famine was at an end. Their own war-balloons had been either captured or destroyed, thousands of their men had deserted to the enemy, and multitudes more had been slain. Every position was dominated by the captured aerostats and the airships of the terrorists. Even the building in which the council was being held might be shattered to fragments at any moment by a discharge of their irresistible artillery. Finally, it was practically certain that within the next few hours their headquarters must be surrounded, and then their only choice would lie between unconditional surrender and swift and inevitable destruction by an aerial bombardment. Manifestly, the time had come to make terms, if possible, and purchase their own safety and that of their remaining troops. Both the generals and every member of their respective staffs saw clearly that victory was now a physical impossibility, and so the immediate issue of the council was that orders were given to hoist the white flag over the tricolour and the Italian standard on the summits of the two towers of the Crystal Palace, and on the flagstaffs over the headquarters. These were at once seen by a squadron of airships coming from the north in obedience to Tremaine's summons, and within half an hour the same squadron was seen returning from the south, headed by the flagship, also flying to the satisfaction of the two generals, the signal of truce. The airships stopped over Sydenham, and ranged themselves in a circle, with their guns pointing down upon the headquarters, and the aerial with Tremaine on board descended to within twenty feet of the ground, in front of the hotel. As she did so, an officer wearing the uniform of a French general of division came forward, saluted, and said that he had a message for the commander-in-chief of the Federation forces. Tremaine returned the salute, and said briefly, "'I am here. What is the message?' I am commissioned by General Gallifet, Commander-in-Chief of the Southern Division, to request on his behalf the honour of an audience. He awaits you with General Cosens in the hotel," replied the Frenchman, gazing in undisguised admiration at the wonderful craft which he now for the first time saw at close quarters. "'With pleasure. I will be with you in a moment,' said Tremaine. And as he spoke the aerial settled gently down to earth, and the gangway steps dropped from her bow. As he entered the room in which the two generals were awaiting him, surrounded by their brilliantly uniformed staffs, he presented a strange contrast to the men whose lives he held in the hollow of his hand. He was dressed in a dark tweed suit with Norfolk jacket and knickerbockers, met by long shooting boots, just as though he was fresh from the moors, instead of from the battlefield on which the fate of the world was being decided. General Le Gallifet advanced to meet him with a puzzled look of half-recognition on his face 
which was at once banished by Tremaine holding out his hand, without the slightest ceremony, and saying, "'Ah, I see you recognise me, General.' "'I do, my Lord Allenmere, and you will permit me to add with the most profound astonishment,' replied the General, taking the proffered hand with a hearty grasp. "'May I venture to hope that with an old acquaintance our negotiations may prove all the easier?' Tremaine bowed, and said, "'Rest assured, General, that they shall be as easy as my instructions will permit me to make them.' "'Your instructions? But I thought—' "'That I was in supreme command? So I am, in a sense. But I am the lieutenant of Natas for all that. And in a case like this his word is law. But come, what terms do you propose?' "'That truce shall be proclaimed for twenty-four hours.' that the commanders of the forces of the League shall meet this mysterious Natas, yourself, and the King of England, and arrange terms by which the armies of France, Russia, and Italy shall be permitted to evacuate the country with the honours of war. "'Then, General, I may as well tell you at once that those terms are impossible,' replied the Chief of the Federation quietly, but with a note of inflexible determination in his voice. In the first place, the honours of war is a phrase which already belongs to the past. We see no honour in war, and if we can have our way, this shall be the last war that shall ever be waged on earth. Indeed, I may tell you that we began this war as one of absolute extermination. Had it not been for the intercession of Natasha, the daughter of Natas, you would not even have been given the opportunity of making terms of peace or even of unconditional surrender. Our orders were simply to slay, and spare not, as long as a man remained in arms on British soil. You are, of course, aware that we have taken no prisoners. "'But, my lord, this is not war, it is murder on the most colossal scale!' exclaimed the General, utterly unable to control the agitation that these terrible words evoked, not only in his own breast, but in that of every man who heard them. To us war and murder are synonymous terms, differing only as wholesale and retail, replied Tremaine dryly. For the mere names we care nothing. This world war is none of our seeking, but if war can be cured by nothing but war, then we will wage it to the point of extermination. Now, here are my terms. All the troops of the League on this side of the River Thames, on laying down their arms, shall be permitted to return to their homes, not as soldiers, but as peaceful citizens of the world, to go about their natural business as men who have sworn never to draw the sword again, save in defence of their own homes. And his Majesty the Tsar? You cannot make terms for the Tsar, General, and let me beg of you not to attempt to do so. No power under heaven can save him and his advisers from the fate that awaits them. "'And if we refuse your terms, the alternative is what?' "'Annihilation to the last man.' A dead silence followed these fearful words, so calmly and yet so inflexibly spoken. General Le Gallifet and the Italian commander-in-chief looked at one another and at the officers standing about them. A murmur of horror and indignation passed from lip to lip. Then Tremaine spoke again, quickly but impressively. "'Gentlemen, don't think that I am saying what I cannot do. We are inflexibly determined to stamp the curse of war out here and now, if it costs millions of lives to do so. Your forces are surrounded, your aerostats are captured or destroyed. It is no use mincing matters at a moment like this. It is life or death with you. 
"'If you do not believe me, General de Gallifet, come with me, and take a flight round London in my airship yonder, and your own eyes shall see how hopeless all further struggle is. I pledge my word of honour as an English gentleman that you shall return in safety. 